This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. Literally, people who are the most successful economically in the history of the world. In the history of the world, right? right? And yet who there's difficulty finding the political consensus to ask them to do a little bit more to help their neighbors and the other people uh, in society that are suffering right now. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. This week on Crossing Division, and if you can believe it, we are in week 14 of our Coronavirus in Tacoma weekly series. Um, we are talking with Nick Federici, and we are going to talk about state budget, uh, what it's looking like, and what we would like to see the state legislature do about it. Uh, but first, coronavirus cases. As of today's Seattle Times, we have a total of 28,680 cases that we have had in the state of Washington, and we have had 1,270 deaths. In Pierce County, we have had 2,281 cases and 93 deaths. And in Pierce County, we're still kind of holding steady, but our numbers are creeping up. Statewide, the numbers are, are actually going up very quickly, although a lot of that is due to um, some really horrific case counts uh, and growing caseloads in our agricultural counties. In Pierce County, we have an infection rate of um, 25.7 people out of 1,000. And that's not great because when we were talking a couple of weeks ago, we were around 15 uh, per 1,000. So we're going up uh, all around the state in Pierce County too. And you know what? The only thing people can do about this is get back into the um, preventive measures of wearing masks, social distancing, and being really thoughtful about when you leave the house and what you are going to be doing because you need to assume you're infectious at all times. But moving on from that unpleasant statistic to our next unpleasant statistic. Um, Nick, tell me a little bit about your work and what you do, and then we'll get into budget talks. Thanks, Evelyn. Um, so I've been working in Olympia at the Capitol since uh, the early 90s uh, as an advocate, primarily for low-income populations um, uh, on issues of affordable housing and homelessness, uh, chemical dependency, behavioral health, um, and uh, and other you know programs that serve our uh, state's most vulnerable, primarily, and uh, as well as some other work uh, with municipalities and and uh, and other clients. But the, the real core of my work since the '90s has been around social justice and has been around uh, economic inequality issues and how we use the public sector as a way to. Uh, improve things for those most vulnerable and those at most at risk in, in Washington State. Mm -hmm. Well, Nick, one of the reasons I was really interested in having you on this podcast was that you had a Facebook post last week on June 17th that talked about our state's projected budget shortfall over the next few years and some thoughts on, you know, how dire that could be. But why don't you tell me what is the state's projected budget shortfall right now? <laughs> Yeah, so because of the COVID crisis um, and the drop-off in economic activity, the the um, 
state's economic uh, revenue forecast council last week on the 17th came out with its projection uh, you know we we I think it's hard to predict a week in advance, and they're trying to predict predict four years in advance. Uh, but what they are uh, anticipating is based on uh, sort of current economic trends um, and uh, and uh, what they anticipate from the reopening and so on and so forth is um, uh, an eight point eight billion dollar shortfall in the state's budget um, versus the growth that it was anticipated to have. Um, you know, this COVID uh, recession marks the end of the longest continuous expansion of economic growth in the nation's history. And, um, and uh, you know, and rather than having a sort of U-shaped downturn, we have a pretty sharp V going down, right? And hopefully the, the recovery will be a similarly sharp upward V, but nobody can anticipate that. So the estimation is an $8.8 billion um, just to continue existing programs and, um, and, uh, and staffing for the for state government. Um, and that's just on the operations side. I'm not an expert as much on the, you know, there's a lot of stuff in terms of transportation that, that has a lot of, uh, of investments that similarly, um, you know, impacted given that people are not driving as much because they're staying at home. And the by far the largest um, piece of income for the state in terms of paying for road improvements and connectivity and all that is from the gas tax. And right. there is no gas tax, right? Because we've, uh, we've seen such a sharp decrease in people's hour, you know, mm-hmm. miles driven, frankly. Um, you know, I think I've filled, filled up my car once since the beginning, you know, since March. So um, good for me, not so good for the state's uh, uh, economy in a, in, a, in, a, in a number of different ways. So um, between, you know, the, the, the sort of short answer is, the state had about a $53 billion budget for the, uh, for the upcoming two-year period or for the current two-year period. Uh, between now and next uh, July 1st of 2021, they, they have a gap of about $4.5 billion, so a little less than, than uh, 10% of the overall budget that somehow they need to close that gap, either by cutting programs to bring them de- bring the uh, the costs down to that level of what they anticipate the money will be coming in, or to figure out how to, uh, to uh, change revenue streams or increase the amount of revenue so that we can continue to meet our, our obligations that, that the legislature and the governor have set. Well, let me uh, back you up a little bit. For people who are not as into budgets, and, and I have to say, I used to be a person like that, and then I realized that just about <laughs> everything in the world and, and all the um, programs that I cared about and services to people, budget is central to all of them. But um, I, I empathize. When I when I started all this, I was just a simple human services bleeding heart advocate, right, and understood there'd be no math on the test. And... As we know, budgets are everything. You can make all the commitments you want in terms of policy and say you're going to do stuff, mm-hmm. but those are hollow um, unless the budget and you know unless the funds are there to actually make those uh, make those things happen. So everything is connected to the budget anymore. Everything's connected to the budget. Well, and so one of the things that the that the forecast council does is is um, it's sort of a two a two edged. Uh, analysis. And the first is, what is the caseload for the state? And what that means is, you know, what does the state expect in terms of the things it has to pay for? And so that's both, you know, kid number of kids in school, it's um, kids in foster care, it's, you know, people who are in our mental health facilities, it's everything you can think of that the state does is an outgoing dollar based on the caseload. So when they project in the future and they say, 
you know, here are the trends we're seeing and we can estimate, you know, that our caseloads this year and next year are going to be higher. And then they look at what do we have coming in to pay for that? And that's the revenue side. And the revenue side in our state is very much based on, as you say, based on buying, you know, um, we are we are a very uh, very much based on sort of a basic consumer economy model. So if you don't drive your car and buy a lot of gasoline, you're not producing the gasoline tax to pay for the roads. If you don't go out and um, you know buy a new car this year, if you put it off, and you're not paying the sales tax into into the coffers that might be needed for something else. Yeah, in many ways, we still have a 1930s uh, tax system uh, trying to trying to keep up with a 21st century economy. And indeed, you know, Washington's uh, high tech industry, one of the foremost in the world, and um, you know, and uh, with those needs that come along with it, broadband capacity, et cetera, et cetera, um, while sort of limping along with, as you say, a consumption based system of uh, of taxation. Yeah, it's really like my uh, my grandmother, and we were talking about New Zealand before we went on the before we went on the air. My grandmother in New Zealand used to manage her household. Um, my granddad would bring home money from the railroad that he earned in cash, and she kept it in her sugar jar, and would pay for the groceries out of the sugar jar. You know, and and if there was anything left over, then that went to you know new clothes for the school year and things like that. I mean. That was very much a 1930s consumer-based economy, but we're really not that much different now in our state. You know, we sort of like whatever we get in from our from our income source is what we keep in the sugar jar, and that's what we have to pay for things. And it it just doesn't, you know, if the sugar jar runs short, we're not going to be able to pay for all the things that we're supposed to be paying for. Well, and I think that analogy is a good one. I think that just as we found out, you know, it'd been sort of axiomatic and feared that, you know, X number of people were one paycheck away from homelessness or one paycheck away from from fiscal catastrophe, we found that out, right? That has been borne out. You know, there's been some things that have, have buffered that, but just as um, many families are working hand to mouth due to a lot of economic circumstances, including some of the massive income inequalities that we have um, that, that in some ways are exacerbated by our, 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 our tax system. Um, the state was the same way as a result, right? It was working hand to mouth just as a structural thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I try to be careful not to say, you know, this happened because somebody did something wrong. I mean, there's, there's a lot of small decisions that are made that, that end up, uh, you know, getting us to where we are. Um, but I think that the state's revenue system, uh, again, has been sort of cobbled together over time and reforming it in any way is very, very difficult because there's no, uh, you know, there's no vested consist- uh, 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 constituency for, uh, for giving more to the state. Uh, so, um, you know, people will fight tooth and nail to having taxes increased or have tax breaks, uh, you know, even, even, uh, moderated in any way. Um, and so, um, while lots of people want the good things that government provides, you know, it's, you know, it's the, the old adage of, you know, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree, right? And, uh, and that guy is increasingly not there, um, uh, particularly more so because of this, uh, this COVID crisis hitting so many families so hard. I think that was one of the things that was so um, surprising to me, and I agree, you know, we've always heard everyone is sort of one paycheck away from a disaster, but um just intellectually, it feels like three months of a lot of people not working shouldn't break the entire system, but it has. Yeah. 
It has. It did. And I would say it was, it was showing strains almost immediately. So it's like, we, we're just, uh, it's, our economy is a very delicate flower and, you know, you take a significant chunk of money out of it and um, it doesn't survive that very well. And when things are going well, there's plenty to go around. Right. And so, and so you're able to sort of uh, ride that bubble, so to speak. Uh, But I think that what we saw very acutely is that is the disconnect between what our economy incentivizes and rewards and who it really depends upon. Right. Right. So now we're running off of, um, you know, restaurant workers and sanitation workers and home care workers and, um, uh, you know, all the folks that have been deemed essential, but who are extraordinarily poorly compensated for that. It turns out are the, people that really are keeping, you know, delivery drivers, right, are the people that are really keeping the economy running right now and, you know, and keeping it ass out of a de facto depression if if we are not, not there already versus hedge funds managers and, you know, whatever, who, you know, CEOs who are very well compensated and um, are sitting twiddling their thumbs with a lot of the rest of us in, you know, in the white collar economy, um, while we rely so heavily on folks who have been disproportionately disadvantaged by all sorts of systems, including the economic system. And, uh, you know, hopefully we learn something coming out of that. And I think that, you know, my Facebook post that you referred to, uh, it's nice to know somebody reads my, you know, what is it that uh, George Carlin called the brain droppings uh, that I put out in the middle of the night uh, when I'm fed up with everything, um, you know, uh, is that, you know, we need to, we need to think of things differently economically. Right. And the fact that as everyone knows, or as everybody should know, trickle down economics has been a, you know, catastrophic failure, both, in, you know, in so many different ways. Um, and, what we really have is this bedrock of the economy, which is people working their butts off in service industries and blue collar jobs, manufacturing jobs, you name it, that are still keeping things afloat. And um, what can we do? What can we encourage government to do that helps improve those circumstances and help rebalance the economy to uh, reward those folks that are such important pieces of the economy and, uh, you know, and, and, in, and in terms of state policy, follow the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm, mm-hmm. right? We have folks who didn't come out of, the, you know, in communities of color and low wage, you know, low wage workers who didn't come out of the that uh, even U-shaped uh, recovery from the from the Great Recession um, in the same way that upper middle class uh, white collar jobs did, right? That skyrocketed back and have really been the, the, the driver to the economy, but very little of that or, or not, uh, uh, lower disproportionate share has trickled down, if you will, to folks who are doing the hard shoe leather work, uh, you know, um, callous producing work um, rather than being keyboard jockeys like yours truly, um, you know. So we already have those folks who didn't, reco- you know, who were, hit worse than anybody by the Great Recession, right? They're the ones who had subprime, you know, lending that were taken advantage of by the, the you know, by, by lenders, and they had, didn't recover, you know, they had foreclosures, they had evictions, they economically haven't, uh, uh, you know, didn't recover as quickly and remained saddled with sort of that bad uh, credit rating that that, uh, that, that gave them. Um, the Their wages have, have lagged behind, and... To be honest, government made some decisions, um, and again, not 
with malign intent, but made some decisions in the Great Recession about how to balance the budget then that disproportionately impacted those same folks. Now we have communities of color and low-income communities that are worse hit by the COVID epidemic, both in terms of job loss or lost hours or you know lost health care benefits, the whole sort of panoply of stuff that keeps people's um, uh, you know, families functioning, um, as well as the disproportionately negative impact on, uh, again, uh, communities of color, uh, persons with disabilities, and seniors, folks who uh, oftentimes are in that same category of economically, um, you know, economically at risk. Um, and so one of the things that I talked about in that in that Facebook post is we can't do that again, right? right? We can't continue to kick people while they're down and down and down. Um, Low-income folks, folks who are depending on the state to stay, you know, to stay alive, much less economically afloat, uh, both in terms of receiving services that therefore they don't have to pay for out of their own pockets, like healthcare or long-term care, um, as well as those folks who deliver it, because oftentimes the folks that are delivering services to low-income folks are low-income folks, right? Home care workers, nursing home workers, folks, you know, folks that are that are again in the in the shoe leather and callous end of the uh, end of the uh, the economy that we all depend on um, are oftentimes just floating, you know, again just ahead of that curve. And in the last recession, uh, both economically as well as in terms of public policy, we made cuts that just savaged those folks. And um, you know, to do that again, I think is un- is morally unconscionable and also bad public and economic policy because if we want people to get back to work if we want people to be functional and successful in our society we need to make sure that they have those basic uh, those basic supports that that frankly only government can provide in those tough times when the private sector is is reeling the way it is and you know this may sound a lot like the New Deal, maybe, right? You know, it's not, you know, the, the, the analogy is, is, is pretty solid there about what, what federal and state governments had to do to step up to the plate to, you know, keep us from totally going into the abyss in the, uh, in the 30s. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting because the first instinct in the, is uh, the government has is, is first to stabilize as an emergency. But right now, so in our state, right now, we don't have the legislature in session. And the governor doesn't have the power, he has some emergency powers, but he doesn't have the power to create legislation or to make significant budget decisions, but he does have the power to cut. And so what he's done is immediately is to say, we're going to implement furloughs for, you know, stop the 3% cost of living increase that was scheduled to go out for most general government employees. And we're going to do furloughs. And the furloughs are one day off a week um, for employees it's it's complicated to figure out who actually has to take them but basically the goal is one day a week off without pay that's a 20 percent salary reduction so if you are let's say a um what used to be called a clerk typist but your your baseline um public employee in state government you work at a reception desk or you work answering the phone or you work you know sorting through all kinds of essential things i mean really a lot of stuff that needs to get done, you're doing. Quite literally exactly where I started as a, exactly. you know, as a level worker, yeah. Exactly, but you're not highly paid. You know, let's say you're probably paid around 30000 a year with benefits, which is a good deal for a lot of people. But, you know, you're living your life, you're paying your bills, and now you've got a 20% salary reduction. So how are you going to handle that? You're going to 
you know, not that a lot of restaurants are open, but you're going to trim back your eating out. You're going to put off your spending. You're going to, you know, make things go a little bit longer. And that means 20% of your income is not going into the economy. It's not, you know, paying the restaurant worker, the restaurant owner. It's not paying the grocery store. It's not paying the farm workers who are producing the produce. And that's when the economy just it dives and it dives and it dives because you cut off the fuel that was running everything. It becomes really a downward spiral and starts to, you know, starts to, uh, you know, eat itself, so to speak. And yet at the same time, you know, the state has limits. The state has to balance its budget, unlike the federal government. So the state doesn't necessarily have a pot of money that it can turn to in an emergency. And that's one of the reasons why we hear a lot about, you know, is there going to be another federal bailout? Is there more federal money coming? Um, but we just don't see a lot of functionality right now from the federal government in terms of doing things like that. Certainly don't see any speed or efficiency. Well, and even looking at the things that they did do, did the money go to the folks that needed it the most, right? Um, in terms of, you know, and when it was given to businesses, did they use that to balance their bottom line, to just do stock buybacks, right, or stuff like that? Or did they do it to retain and improve their workforce uh, ability? And, you know, and I don't have all the answers on this, but we certainly have seen some horror stories about money not getting to folks at uh, on Main Street and instead the money staying on Wall Street, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, maybe that was the design, but I don't, I, uh, something tells me there are a lot of people in Congress that thought that it was going to help some folks stay above water and it hasn't in the same way I think it is intended. Yeah. And I think it's one of, it's a, this is a real sort of fundamental, I think, um, issue in American politics. And that is that I don't think anyone really under, doesn't agree to a certain extent that if you want to get money on the street fast, you increase the minimum wage, you increase social security benefits, you increase unemployment benefits, you increase your SNAP and your food benefits, because this is money that goes to people who will spend it immediately. They're not, they don't have Cayman bank accounts. They don't have, you know, stocks to buy back. They are living hand to mouth. And so you give them the money, it gets spent in your local economy, your local economy, you know, your local store owner has a little bit of extra money that that person can spend. Your grocery store can hire one extra worker. I mean, it's got to hit the lowest level. And yet every time we see this, it seems like the emphasis is on, you know, bailing out the cruise ships, bailing out the airlines, bailing out the, all of which may need to happen, but it can't happen at the expense of putting, you know, actual dollars into people's pockets because that's where it's going to be the fuel for the economy. Absolutely. I think that's an exceptional example. And, you know, and again, we part of the investment in large corporations is is a sort of, um, uh, you know, hoping that in one fell swoop that retains or protects or or provides the opportunity for, you know, for growing additional jobs, um, you know. Um, but it was interesting. One of the um, one of the interesting things that was in that Economic and Revenue Forecast Council um, estimate um, from last week was the fact that, unlike many other states, Washington's income, personal incomes have begun to rebound mm. as sort of things have been reopened 
or companies or others have figured out how to make things work um, in this, you know, curbside delivery at the restaurant or at the big box store or at the, you know, or at, uh, you know, Compass Rose down the street from my house or what have you, um, you know, and have begun rehiring people back as a result of that. And so the, uh, the personal income growth has, has rebounded somewhat. Um, but lagging behind is the revenue that comes from that, right? So it's not, we're not seeing that playing out in the state's, um, in the state's revenue, again, because it's based on consumption. And so even folks whose incomes are rebounding, I think, are looking with great uncertainty at the economy, great uncertainty about whether there'll be a second wave or whatever you want to call it around around COVID, um, and therefore aren't spending the money that they're making. And that's probably a rational economic choice um, in many cases. But to your point, if you all along have been depending on, you know, are at the, at the lower, lower rungs of the economy, your service worker, your, you know, your, uh, uh, you know, uh, delivery driver or your, uh, or your restaurant worker. Um, and it's always been sort of paycheck to paycheck. Um, and then your paycheck takes a nosedive. If you put some money back in those people's pockets through, as you said, unemployment benefits, um, ensuring that they don't have to spend money on certain things like uh, food and medicine, right, by uh, helping them with with direct benefits from the state or federal government or what have you, then that money that they save or that additional income that they they're going to be spending it immediately, right? Because they're, they have no, you know, you hear about businesses working on a very tight margin, but that's a lot of money going in and a lot of money going out. For a lower income person, that margin means something very different, that they're just sort of staying at a status quo. And if you give them, you know, $500 more a year, that's $500 more a year that they're going to be pumping right back out into the economy, in, you know, in all sorts of different, uh, you know, fashion, uh, you know, and often at our mom and pop stores and, uh, and local businesses that are also suffering. So, you know, so there are public policy solutions that you can look at that help that direct assistance to folks to, to either free up their existing resources or give them the resources that they need in order to buy the essentials, the essential goods that they need to, to keep things running. I mean, Everybody's still got to get medicated. Everybody still has to has to uh, feed their family, and you know, and we have a huge crisis right now that needs propping up in the both rental and home ownership right. housing market. Right? We already had a catastrophic homelessness crisis in this nation, and particularly in Washington State. Again, specific in many cases, specifically because the cost of housing is so high in Washington, particularly urban Puget Sound I-5 corridor, um, that even if you were making a good living, you still couldn't keep up with the double-digit increases in your rent or the double-digit increases in home prices. Um, again, increases in income coming to landlords and to and to mortgage lenders is good for the economy. Is it good for, for Joe Blow on the street, for you and me, uh, who are, you know, trying to play catch up with, you know, um, uh, you know, while uh, the economy is stagnated and now, you know, wages aren't just stagnated as they were for lower income folks, they've dropped off the cliff. And so that gap gets bigger and bigger. And so, you know, we see something in the neighborhood of 10 to 15% of folks who aren't able to pay their rent right now and aren't able to pay their mortgages right now. And the governor has put in place policies where people can't be evicted um, 
until the beginning of August, but come the beginning of August, again, there's another cliff. Will we be out of this economic circumstances? Will we be out of the COVID, uh, the COVID crisis? Um, doesn't seem like it, uh, particularly, again, for low-income folks that have been hardest hit by uh, by all of this. And so what happens when, you know, and you have this sort of multiplier effect of, I need to save the money for for my rent, and therefore I'm not going to buy X at the store, and that impacts that person who owns the store who then has to pay their mortgage. I mean, we all know it's interconnected, and I may be belaboring it, but, you know, there's all these threads that you know, are all these pillars that have been sort of propping up the economy and you keep knocking them out. And at some point the whole thing collapses. And I think we've been very, very fortunate that we haven't seen that happen yet. And I'll, you know, I'll give credit where credit is due to, you know, to the federal, some of the federal bailout stuff that, and, and, and I think a huge credit is due to the, the folks in the, in state government that, um, that saw far enough ahead to be able to put somebody aside to make sure that, that some of the immediate needs in public health and uh, and housing and homelessness were taken care of. It's, it's sort of the last two things they did uh, in mid-March before the legislature adjourned as things were just sort of starting to percolate around uh, around COVID and the seriousness of the crisis become clear. And I think the legislature and the governor had foresight and the governor, frankly, in his many of his executive orders since then has had foresight to stave that off. But at some point there's a reckoning and there's bills due for individuals, et cetera, et cetera. And how are we going to ensure that people are able to meet those obligations? And again, as you said, I think it goes back to the old Keynesian economics, which is that government has a unique role and ability and I would say moral obligation to ensure that those pillars are propping up the economy, not just the economy macro, but the economy on a human family to family basis. And Again, if you cut programs like we did in the during the Great Recession, one of the huge tragedies of the Great Recession, I think, was um, sort of shortening the line and thinning the soup, so to speak, in terms of you know no massive cuts, but lots of small nicks and cuts that added up for some families to be catastrophic. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to stop you there. We'll take a break because I want to talk exactly about that. You know, what did we do the last time? And why should we do something different this next time? Okay. This is Nate Bowling, Alaska Air MVP and host of the Nerd Farmer podcast. There are three places I call home right now. The first is Tacoma, OBS. The second is Abu Dhabi, where I'm teaching for the next two years. And the third place I feel like home is on board an Alaska Airlines flight, sipping on Northwest beer and watching free movies. When you spend as much time on an airplane as I do, you come to appreciate the finer things that Alaska Airlines provides. It's because at Alaska, customer service comes first. I see it in all the little details that make the experience of flying better. Free messaging and free movies on select flights, and of course, that signature fruit and cheese plate. When I fly, I don't even look at the travel sites. I go straight to alaskaair.com and book. Thank you, Alaska Airlines, for your longtime support of Channel 253. Well, we're back talking with Nick Federici about the state budget and what can be done and what should be done. But before we get back into it, let me just urge you to consider membership in Channel 253. Channel 253 is your local podcast purveyor 
and it is a screaming good deal. It is $4 a month to be a member. We are working on some ideas for more member-only special secret content that you will want to get access to. Um, but it's also just a good thing to support so that we have these um, stories and topics um, about our local Tacoma area and what we're doing. So please consider supporting Channel 253. All right, Nick, let's talk about, I know you were around the legislature and I was uh, in Olympia too, the last time, which was uh, when Governor Gregoire was the governor and the economy just fell to bits and the, and the state economy did too. And uh, that one was managed largely by cuts and those cuts were incredibly painful. So what, what's your sort of takeaway from that? Well, as you said, I was sort of front and center, again, as a human services advocate, trying to look out for those folks that had already been devastated by the economic downturn, many of whom had been in some prime loans, et cetera, et cetera, and just massive waves of foreclosures and evictions as a result of um, of that. And then I think we, um, and again, not through malign intent by anyone, but um, you use the tools that you have. And the tools that were most easily available were um, sort of victimless crimes in the, you know, in the, uh, in the parlance, right? You know, so, well, we're just not going to, you know, so, so 2% uh, uh, pay cuts for state employees, you know, it's just a little bit um, uh, plus sort of tightening of the eligibility and benefits for state employees and plus, um, furloughs for state employees, plus, 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 right? And so it's sort of the death of a thousand cuts there. And that's for uh, employed, middle-income, mostly folks. For lower-income folks, much of the same type of thing, right? Um, you don't, um, uh, and some people call these Olympia cuts, right? That, you know, they, they may not really go downward but you know if this is your expectation that you're going to be one of the people getting services and all of a sudden you're not one of the people getting services that feels a heck of a lot like a cut to somebody right and um and there were real cuts to services um uh just some of the areas that i know well from human services land um you know so folks seniors and persons with disabilities right um uh, not all of them were required to be covered by the state. So the state of Washington had relatively generous benefits um, in a comparative sense, and meaning better than Mississippi, right? Um, you know, but not always, right? And so, um, unfortunately, many of the cuts that got put in place put us on par with Mississippi in terms of, you know, being 41st in the country in terms of mental health beds, which we have seen, you know, we cut mental health services and the amount that we pay providers. Well, that's not something necessarily that consumers saw, but if you're giving less money to the folks who are delivering services, they're going to tighten up who they deliver services to. Um, decreasing the hours of uh, home care workers, right, that go out and, and serve persons with disabilities and seniors. Um, increasing how sick you need to be in order to qualify for those services, right? It's not, you know, oh, I can't get myself out of bed or, uh, or, or go to the bathroom on my own, um, so I need services. Oh, I'm sorry, you need to have, be able to check three boxes 
of things that you can't do before you can be eligible uh, for that. You, ha- you also have to not be able to feed yourself. So sorry that you can't get yourself out of bed or that you can't use the bathroom without assistance. We're not going to pay for somebody to help you do that mm-hmm. when you're elderly and frail and 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 impoverished, right? And so those types of cuts had a huge impact, I think, um, on it. And just one, one additional thing, one of the one of the sharpest increases that we saw in family homelessness started on February 1st, 2011, which was the date that it was effective that um, wait lists were put in, or I'm sorry, that the time limit was put in place for uh, for uh, single parents and their kids on temporary assistance for needy families, what we used to call welfare. Yeah. But a single mom usually and, and kids without without uh, without income or with with very limited income and um, the federal government when it did its you know welfare reform in 1997 said you can put time limits lifetime time limits or length of current uh, assistance time limits on people and the state of Washington hadn't done that because guess what if you're in desperate circumstances that doesn't necessarily follow a time clock um, so but by but by li- time limiting that the way the federal government said we could, you know, tons of people becoming homeless and, uh, and, uh, sorry, I don't have more better data off the top of my head than tons and lots and zillions. But, um, what I can recall too, is the process that the state went through it. And, you know, as process is good, it was a good process in that, you know, all of the agencies and all the programs would come forward, you know, every week and kind of lay out their plans, uh, to the governor and to, um, groups that it was sort of you know all database and they were trying to really hard to be fair but here's the thing i mean unless you're in olympia i don't think you really understand every day is like a lobby day when some group comes and it is things like you know parents of children with with developmental disabilities coming and saying we just need help for our kids to get them a little bit of assistance so they can learn in school and the next day it's you know, state employees are coming saying, we just need a little bit more because, you know, if we get three more staff people on this unit at Western State Hospital, we'll be able to drop assault rates down by 30%. And the next day, it's, you know, the students at the University of Washington coming in saying, if we could just get this little piece, you know, we would be able to, you know, expand this program significantly. And these are all incredibly good ideas and incredibly valuable None of them without merit. I mean, none of them that didn't have merit. They're all, in many ways, equally important yeah. to somebody, right? And, and, and yet, all things that people are in need of. In a cut-based decision-making framework, it's like um, n- none of you are going to get what you're asking for, and two of you are going to get nothing. And it's, um, you know, everyone everyone is angry. Everyone is, is literally people were crying in these hearings because their family members, you know, how do you say to someone, to a family that says, all I need is, you know, I need 10 hours a week of home care so that someone come in can come in and give my elderly mother a shower and fix her lunch. And we say, we, we can't do that. Well, who is going to do that? Nobody. Nobody is going to help you with this very small request that will make a difference in your life. It's not going to happen. Yes, that- it did before. It's not going to happen anymore. Well, and it has a direct impact on people, on individual families. So the state shortening the line on who is eligible for having mom taken care of means somebody's got to do it, which means usually a daughter or grand grandchild or somebody's going to do that, which means they're less available to 
to earn an income for their own family, right? So even though they're, you know, they're sort of victimless crimes of, you know, oh, we're just not going to let you be eligible the way you otherwise would have been, all those ripple effects uh, come into play that have those types of economic impacts. Whereas the the flip side is you you know as you were talking about you fund those services that means somebody gets paid and is going to spend the money that they make from from being paid to deliver those services of feeding and and toileting and um, and helping uh, you know uh, little ladies get out of bed right hardly you know some socialist utopia right just basic human need right um, and uh, uh, that otherwise isn't going to happen. That person, get, you know, grandma's better. Right. Somebody's getting paid and spending that money. And the children and the grandchildren and whoever else would have had to sort of backfill that service. Now, you know, there was a time when families took care took care of their own and pulled sure. themselves up by their boots. But the economy doesn't support that anymore. You can't be a, in, in many cases, in most cases, perhaps, a single family, you know, a, a uh, a family on one income with kids and still function in this economy, um, yeah. even be, even before COVID. And again, particularly a, in communities of color, where um, you know economic and policy decisions, not you know, again, have been made over the co- course of decades, if not centuries, to you know to keep them from being successful in the you know and having the same opportunities in the economy. And so. Um, you know, my hope is that we look at all that and we look at those mistakes that were made, um, again, through no no particular fault of anybody's, um, you know, but if I'm down there, if somebody's down there advocating for um, additional resources for persons with disabilities, right, that could be, you know, there but for the grace of God go any any of us, right, um, to have that happen, um, you know, because of the cuts in the, I mean, it was bad before the Great Recession, because of the cuts in the Great Recession and the lack of funding since then, there are 15,000 families, 15,000 families in Washington state that are eligible for those types of services for their family members with disabilities, but who don't get it because they haven't been funded. I'm sure there's lots of valid policy reasons for why that is, including that there's just not enough money to go around. Um, But that's 15,000 people um, that we're saying, you know, we care, but we're not going to give you any money to, to help lift you out of those circumstances. And so, you know, um, and during the, you know, during the great recession, the legislature tried to find new ways to bring in revenue. I mean, there, there's a sort of interesting conversation to have about who's doing well. And again, not to stagnate, stagnate or, or, or penalize success or, you know, or, or harm those that are the, you know, goose that lays the golden egg in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, of, um, you know, creating jobs and creating incomes for folks. Cause that's important. Right. Um, but there's folks that are doing all right again, even before COVID. Um, and now you see some businesses and I won't mention anybody in particular, but there's some businesses that have, you know, had huge increases because of COVID and because they've been relied upon more uh, during this COVID crisis. And some companies or corporations that we have locally who, um, you know, delivering things to people's homes that people need is actually a really good business during a, during a pandemic, as it turns out. Yeah. And, and who are, and, and who's, 
uh, and whose founders are now pushing trillionaire status, yeah, right? Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Amounts of money that previously we had never experienced. That are unfathomable. I mean, literally, people who are the most successful economically in the history of the world, in the history of the world, right? right? And yet who there's difficulty finding the political consensus to ask them to do a little bit more to help their neighbors and the other people uh, in society that are suffering right now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we have, again, many, many companies that have stepped up to the plate and been very good corporate citizens or philanthropic citizens to help with homelessness, help with disabilities, help with all, all manner of things. But philanthropy and generosity only goes so far, right? Uh, I mean, the nonprofit sector accounts for about 10% of um, overall human services funding uh, nationally, right? So telling people to go to the church or to go to the nonprofit or to do a grant or what have you, sure, wonderful, necessary, but not sufficient. And so, what can we do, particularly in a state that has the worst tax system in the in the country, 51 out of 51 jurisdictions um, in terms of regressivity, right? Um, folks who are, that we're already talking about, that are most harmed by the previous economic circumstances and COVID and, 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 um, uh, pay seven times the rate that uh, trillionaire does right in terms of in terms of their income in Washington State. Uh, we'll say a billionaire because there's only one trillionaire and he's not there yet. But anyway, um, you know. But just you know, it's like you know Warren Buffett talking about how he actually pays a higher tax rate than his secretary does, or his, the um, opposite. His secretary actually pays a higher. Tax oh, sorry, rate sorry, sorry. That's what I meant. Does. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And his secretary pays a higher tax rate than he does, yeah. and that's you know, and that's. That's Washington state policy. And again, largely because, you know, if we're talking about persons with disabilities, they can't come, or in many cases, they can't come and talk to their elected representatives. Um, Somebody who's homeless, who's just trying to get by uh, day to day, can't come and present their case. The guy who wants a tax break or the guy who has a tax break and wants to keep it, boy, howdy, do I see him a lot in Olympia, right? And so, and his, and his, legion of lobbyists that are paid to do that right mm-hmm. but um but for the public interest and for helping out everyday families and uh, and working people you know there's a lot of us who are the progressive side of things who fight for that um but it's harder because we're you know pushing yeah. a sisyphean rock uphill right um versus the status quo which is don't raise taxes just cut programs when you're in a uh, when you're in a uh, in a downturn, and um, you know, and in some ways, devil take the hindmost again, not out of intent, right? But that's the that's the ultimate impact. That's always been so. I'm saying I would say based on a lot of the things that you're saying, there's sort of two important things that we need to see in Olympia. One is when you cut, what are you going to cut, and how are you going to cut? So yep. the money that the money that is is going down to, to, to meet your budget needs. And the second is money that's coming in. And, you know, is there any new money that can be identified that can come in? And so let's talk first on, on the cuts. What would you like to see differently from what happened the last time? Last time was kind of like everything's on the table. And, yeah, we're going to nibble it all to death. 
what would you rather see yeah. this time? Well, I think everything has to be on the table, right? It's disingenuous to say otherwise. Uh, but there's there's some different limitations that the state has um, than they had 10 years ago, right? Um, and in some ways, because of what the state did 10 years ago, the state underfunded a lot of things and a bunch of people sued the state and won, mm-hmm. right? Around mental health funding, mm-hmm. around K-12 funding, around some services for persons with disabilities, right? That that these nicks and cuts resulted in some pretty substantial both federal and state court decisions, the state couldn't or shouldn't have done things um, mm-hmm. the way they did. As a result, and as a result of sort of the boom economy that we've had, the state has invested substantial resources in those things, K-12 education, higher education, um, a number of other things, uh, to an extent mental health, mm-hmm. um, that the state can't throttle back on mm-hmm. um, in the same way that it used to. So, you know, we talked about a $53 billion budget, about 60% of that is, frankly, off limits in a number of different ways. Um, the state can't uh, cut those things without um, without a court challenge um, and, and probably losing in court. Um, though I'm not an attorney, I only play one on TVW. Um, so, uh, so don't listen to me for legal advice. Um, but, um, you know, I think the court decisions bore out that you have to be very careful about, about what you cut. Now, the reality means that if 60% of the cuts are, um, are, or if 50, 60% of the state's budget is off the table, the other 40% is in dire straits, right? The, the governor asked its, his, uh, his state agencies to look at cutting 15%, uh, which he could do. Uh, you know, the governor has the ability to decide not to spend the money that the legislature has authorized him or her to spend as long as they do that in a rational and, and somewhat fair fashion. Um, again, that's a sort of lay person, you know, again, I'll leave it to you attorneys to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, make that, uh, make that manifest. But, um, uh, you know, there has to be a rational basis for how they do that. At some point, particularly because we're halfway through the fiscal year, so that $4.5 billion needs to come out of $26.5 billion worth of, because we've already been through the first year of that fiscal year. So those cuts get even deeper. Then you you look at the fact that they can only come out of 40% of the state budget, and you're looking at something like a 40% cut in services if you do it across the board. So, you know, the, 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 you know, Governor Gregoire did, I think, a, a, a yo person's job in trying to figure out what are those things that we can and should and should not be doing as a state. But my sense is that that was done and we cut the fat. Yep. We cut over 10, you know, over, over a five year period, they cut $10 billion out of human services out of assistance to lower income folks or folks in need of services, um, as well as many other things, the furloughs and the, and the, and mm-hmm. the cuts that we talked about for state employees, um, all of which have those same type of economic impacts. Um, I just don't see where the fat is at this point, right? We don't have this bloated bureaucracy. We don't have uh, rich benefits that we're giving out to folks that, you know, that don't justify themselves, right? Every, you know, I can still remember, uh, I was working with one of my clients during the Great Recession was the Cancer Society. And, you know, 
they took money from cancer prevention programs, um, you know, from smoking cessation programs to fund healthcare services immediately. And I remember one of my favorite people, a staffer telling me, yeah, 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 Nick, I know people are going to die because of this, right? But they're going to die down the road, right? You you know, smoking cessation programs are going to prevent deaths 10 or 30 years from now. We're looking at how do we fund stuff so that people don't die today because they don't have services. Um, So I get it. But you know, very little of those funds have been restored in the interim, uh, whether it be for tobacco prevention or whether it be for DD services or or uh, or what have you. Um, so we need to recognize that the fat has been cut to the bone and they were into muscle and bone by the time they were done doing stuff. And there has been this slow uh, restoration in the last several years, but in many cases, just to fix the har- the self-inflicted harm that the state did to itself to, uh, you know, we have a huge homelessness crisis. And part of the reason for that was because there wasn't enough affordable housing. So the state has invested more in affordable housing than it did previously and needs to do hundreds of billions of dollars more to ensure that people can pay their rent or have places that that will accept them. Um, uh, You know, folks with mental health problems weren't getting served and with chemical dependency problems weren't getting served and aren't getting served. And again, we've made some of those reinvestments, but there's still a lot of people on the street that are homeless simply because they have mental health or chemical dependency issues that there's no beds for them to get treated in, um, or there's no outreach workers to try to get them, uh, you know, rather than sweeping homeless camps, are there the, are there the staff to, try to communicate with these folks and try to get them into treatment or into uh, other types of constructive situations where they can, um, where they can get the services that they need and ideally get back on a self-sufficiency threshold, right? You know, or, or trajectory, right? That bootstrapping that we always hear about. If you don't have boots, you can't bootstrap, right? So, so what do we do to be able to just get people off the street and into housing or into services or what have you? But so much of that was cut. You know, so we're still sort of grinding metal when it comes to a lot of services. And again, the legislature has done a great, you know, at the risk of pandering, I'll, you know, our, our own, you know, representative, uh, uh, Lori Jenkins, you know, who's now Speaker of the House, incredible uh, leadership on public health and mental health services just as a rank and file legislator, right? And now she has the opportunity to, to take that, you know, even more to town. Senator Jean Darniel, who, uh, who, you know, has made a huge priority those uh, those least fortunate and has really stepped up to the plate as one of the real leaders in the Senate to, to do that. But not necessarily everybody in the legislature agrees with them that those should be the priorities, uh, despite how strongly and, and vigorously they've advocated for those things. So I think part of it is, you know, people needing to have their voices heard around, you know, that there's not fat to cut and that and that um, not providing services to folks has some very real economic and human impacts on folks and that austerity is not the knee-jerk first place we should go but it is automatically right we need to we need to bend the curve we need to pull that stuff down but you know what if there's other ways to do it Um, it, even in the short term just to give us you know, uh, time to fight again another day that um, may be policies that we don't want to have to do in the short term, um, but that, again, do no harm Mm -hmm. to the economy or to families or to people in need, uh, you know, back in the, in the, 
the dot-com bust recession, right? I've been through a few of these um, uh, legislatively. Uh, you know, we were getting a flow of uh, tobacco revenue, right, from the tobacco settlement, and we securitized that. Mm-hmm. We used that, expect, you know, however many millions of dollars a year we were going to get, and sold the rights to that on Wall Street. Was that good public policy? Probably not. Was it um, what had to be done in order to pay the bills today? It's the same type of thing that, you know, that I mentioned in terms of saving lives 30 years from now versus saving lives now. Mm-hmm. Um but can we do this in a conscious fashion? I mean, we sort of did hand to mouth and and a big fire drill the last time. Can we think about, particularly at this unique historic moment in time where we are with the black community and and others um, who have been systematically disenfranchised and disadvantaged economically and politically, having more of a voice and listen to those voices about the ways that the system has disadvantaged them and explicitly not just avoid those, but try to counteract that, mm-hmm. uh, both in the short term by not further victimizing those folks uh, with with state policy decisions based on austerity, um, and look at a long term that if we have to make short term difficult decisions, how do we ameliorate that with better long term policy? Right, if we have to do regressive uh, tax things um, or suboptimal fiscal things like securitization or stuff like that. Um, what can we do to balance that in the, in the out years, uh, you know, to, you know, if we do a capital gains tax, which has been a very popular idea again um, for folks who are making income from essentially luxury transactions um, and um, you know, selling stock options, et cetera, et cetera, things that, you know, I yearn to pay a capital gains tax someday, right? You know, because it means that you're affluent. It means that you have capital gains on which to pay a tax, uh, uh, luxury transactions, essentially. So if that's how you're getting your income, maybe you can get a little less of that income. Again, not have it swept away, but get a little less of that income in order to share it with folks who otherwise are going to be catastrophically devastated. And that money doesn't start to come in for a lot of reasons for about 18 months due to okay. a bunch of technical reasons and the fact that rich people will sue to not have their capital gains tax, et cetera, et cetera. But can we do stuff that banks on that money in the, in the, in the long term and, and, uh, and, uh, and make some, some short-term decisions that still do no harm? It's not easy. It's going to be dev- you know, devilishly difficult, but I think the tools are there. What do you think people can do? So let's say people are listening to this and they are sort of, you know, interested in civic issues, interested in politics, what can they do to, to try to feel like, you know, to be helpful, but to also be engaged in this? Because I think sometimes we do let it a little bit, you know, let Olympia sort of sort it out. And um, sometimes that works fine and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Um, several things. One of which is don't take my word for it. Right. Okay. I mean, go and get educated about what the what the situation is and how it impacts you personally. Right. I am professionally paid to look out for certain groups of people. And I, and I try to do that as well as I can. Everybody out there is part of some quote unquote interest group, whether mm-hmm. they're a foster parent, whether a former foster kid, whether they're someone with a senior um, who may need services, whether there's somebody who cares about um, a family member with a, uh, with, uh, you know, who's living with a developmental disability, whether or not they, you know, if they've lost their job and they need, um, you know, some sort of job assistant, right? Everybody falls into 
a number of different categories if they just step back and think about that, including what can be done for you that's not being done for you, uh, much less what could be done to you if you're not part of the process, right? There's an old saying that if you're not, if you're not at the table, you're part of the menu, right? Um, and so um, um, I think it's very important for folks to step back and think about what they stand to gain or lose depending on government's going to spend money on stuff, both the federal and the state government. What can they do to help you? Not in a selfish, individualistic sort of, you know, pad my pocket type of way, but in the sense of, what can it do to make the best decisions possible that result in the greatest good for the greatest number? You would think that after a quarter century in Olympia, I would have a little less naivete and optimism, perhaps, but that's what keeps it functioning, right? Is people having their voices heard to their elected officials about that and becoming educated. One of the, I mean, one of the places that I would point folks to is Washington Budget and Policy Center, which does an exceptional job of um, bird dogging this stuff in the budget and does a very good job of um, documenting what's been done in the past, what the options are for the future, and what the impacts would be of cuts to low-income folks, to furloughs, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're economists, I'm not. Um, so they, they do a really great job of, um, of that analysis. And I would point people to that um, because they also do a good job of breaking it down in terms of um, what this means for families, not just as an economy, not just as this, again, $53 billion state budget, but what does it mean to families and individuals um, that in the absence of some sort of uh, state assistance may be, uh, may be high and dry. And so I do that. And then based on that education and that research that people do for themselves, uh, you know, Hey, we're all home right now. We might as well use the internet uh, powers for good. Uh, you know, don't, don't listen to QAnon, you know, get your, you know, get your, uh, you know, listen to the two, five, three and get the, get the facts for what can be done and what should be done. And then talk to your elected officials about that and band together with folks. You know, there's groups like the children's Alliance. That's a fantastic advocacy organization that all they do is look at what's best for kids and what can the state do to help with that. Um, uh, and again, people may see this as sort of a, you know, gimme, 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 what, what's for me type of, uh, type of thing, but it's really, to me, about what, what do we value? Who do we want to be as a society and as a state? And making the explicit choices, you know, we've done, you know, we as individuals and even policymakers sometimes make choices like this, la, 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 right? You know, we don't want to know the bad news. We need to tell the bad news, right? That's unfortunately a lot of what I do. Uh, you know, professionally, I feel like a Harry Potter dementor sometimes. I walk into the room and suck the joy out of it by saying, oh, there's going to be these cuts. But what's the flip side of that? What can we do to avoid this devastation? And not just get to a new normal, right, which we, which we have to find, you know, that sort of equilibrium during and post-COVID. But what, what do we want it to be? We have this opportunity where everything is fluid, everything is in turmoil, and people who have been disadvantaged for decades are suddenly speaking up. Be part of that cacophony. Help shape those decisions. Help shape that, um, that message with your voice around what you want Washington to look like. If you want an income tax, let people know. If you 
want more services for people with disabilities, let people know, right? And those people, and I'm sure this will come back to bite me, are uh, uh, people tell me, hey, thanks a lot, Nick. Um, you know, are your elected legislators who are there to make those decisions? And they're called representatives for a reason. They want to represent your interests. And the more better information that we as, as, as uh, individuals give to them, the better those decisions will be for them to know, hey, there's a family in Parkland that in the absence of X program is going to have this happen to their loved one is very valuable information. And does it tug on heartstrings and is it, you know, lobbying and all that stuff? Absolutely. But it's also the truth. Yeah. All right, then. Well, I think we'll end on that note. I think that's really the best advice to give one, you know, get, get educated, find out what you can talk to your legislators and talk to each other and band together. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is a little Pollyanna-ish, but in times of severe um, trouble, there's also opportunities for great change. So let's make the most of it. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate you talking with us. Thanks for doing this. Great to talk to you. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.